You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This week, we're going to talk about the climate and specifically carbon capture. Everyone is doing it, but do we really know what we're talking about? Earlier this year, Elon Musk offered a $100 million prize for a carbon capture solution, and we've also seen VC funding in this sector skyrocket since the beginning of January 2020. Our guests today come from two very different geographies, Helsinki and Oman. Uh, we'll be featuring Henrietta Moon, who is the founder of Carbo Culture, and Talal Hassan, the founder of 4401 Earth, to discuss two very different approaches to carbon capture and the climate. We'll kick it off with Henrietta first. This podcast is supported by TikTok. TikTok is a key platform for businesses. By constantly making sure that the platform remains a safe place for everyone, TikTok offers a welcoming and positive environment where companies can express themselves in their most authentic way. So what if TikTok was the asset your business needs today to thrive tomorrow? Hi, Henrietta. It's great to have you with us. Hello. Excellent to be here. Wonderful. Well, we can see with your company, Carbo Culture, that you guys are on a mission to essentially save the planet. But for people who aren't familiar with your company, tell us what you do. Yes. So, so we remove atmospheric carbon and store it in a way that's safe for 1,000 years. How on earth is that possible? <laughs> Tell me, how, what does it look like? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we started thinking about this problem, like we have climate change because there's too much carbon in the atmosphere and it's actually fairly tricky to get down. Um, so, so, you know, carbon heats faster than air and hence we have uh, global warming and that's causing, you know, shifts in our, in our climate as we know it. And so, so basically, how do we get it down? Because carbon is quite useful in many, many shapes and forms. I mean, all life on Earth is carbon-based, uh, but, but obviously there's too much of it up there now. And so we started thinking that, hey, plants already do this in the natural carbon cycle. So, so all plants, trees and biomass and crops and everything take down hundreds of billions of tons of carbon dioxide annually but also respire it back naturally. So how could we tap into this massive scale carbon cycle that's already happening and save ourselves from trying to invent fans that will capture carbon and need a lot of energy or stuff like that. And so essentially we turned to, to an, you know, technology that had been in, in academic research for over a decade already. And, and basically our technology is now based on that. And what we do is we take plant matter. So at the moment, uh, woody chips or um, we're using walnut shells or peach pits or all sorts of waste, waste materials. Uh, and then we need to convert that carbon into a stable form. So essentially, you know, trees have leaves that fall on the ground, but very quickly they decompose and re-return to the atmosphere. So what we need to do is stabilize the carbon that's already in those plants that have drawn it down. And that's what we do with our technology. So we turn it into kind of like a pure carbon or, or almost like a mineral. And in that form, 
nothing will eat it, it won't decompose or nothing will happen to it for, for over a thousand years. That's incredible. I, you just like, so you're essentially mimicking plants, uh, making something that will last a thousand years and using a technology that's been stuck in the academic world for 10 years. I love that. That's incredible. Um, but tell me, I mean, I, it just sounds almost counterintuitive that we would you know, the solution would be to create something that's essentially like a rock that doesn't go anywhere. Like, what can that be used for? Yeah. So, so biocarbon or biochar is actually quite an ancient technique. Uh, so, you know, humans have been making charcoals since the dawn of time, but this is perhaps a little bit more efficient way of doing it or, or sort of like first upgrade in a hundred years. <laughs> um, and so... Essentially, it's used for, for soil enhancement. So, so it's uh, one gram of our, our carbon can have over 400 square meters of surface area. So, so it's great structure for the soil, uh, kind of like a coral reef in the sea, you know, fosters all sorts of life. But, but this would just go into the soil with, with nutrients and then could slow release the nutrients, for example. Um, so all, all soils on, on earth have carbon and it's very, very essential in the soils. And so we're just putting it kind of back there. And, and that's like, so, so when thinking of carbon removal, this is a great way of storing it in a way that we don't have to, you know, pressure it deep underground into some wells or, or (laughs) stuff like that. Wow. And how did you, how did you come about? building the company in this way into this solution? I mean, already to go after a technology that wasn't necessarily being commercialized. I mean, just just give me the backstory. Yeah, so so I was at this program. I was selected to be in uh, Singularity University's Global Solutions Program, which I think they're not running anymore. But, but back in 2013, it was a three-month intensive program where they brought people from all around the world uh, I came from Finland, and my co-founder actually uh, is American. So, so we were there, and we were thinking of starting something around environment. A lot of the other people were working on, you know, health technologies or poverty or women's rights or something else. So, so we were just drawn to the the kind of like massive scale problem of climate change, and he had looked at all sorts of different technologies and worked with a few of them in you know stuff like uh, graphene production and some hydrogen stuff and it was like a general sort of uh, Chris is like a sort of old school inventor type personality and so he had uh, looked at different technologies and found that this was just really fascinating and a kind of like could be an elegant way to do it so so we went to meet the the research group and so forth and and a few years after that program uh, we got started. And I think that's where it's very clear that when you're starting stuff, you need complementary skills in the team. Because Chris, uh, you know, thought that this technology was great, but but kind of didn't have the tools to get started, perhaps. And so a few years after the program, I just, uh, I was running my previous company, but I found people to give it, give it over to. And uh, found a little bit of investment for us so we can we could get going and I think we entered some challenges or something like that and that really kick-started kick-started the company in the end of 2016 so yeah uh 
Things take time. Wow. <laughs> 2013, were there a lot of companies thinking about climate back then? Uh, no, not really. And, and we weren't able to go with a kind of carbon removal angle at that time either, because uh, there was no carbon price really. So, so I think the European trading system, which was the only one, maybe California had something at the time, but but ETS was really one of the only ones and it was trading at maybe five euros a, a ton or something. So, so things were not great on that front. Uh, and so we had to go with the kind of like soil amendment business case. Uh, and of course our soils are in, in dire, dire problems as well, but that was kind of like how we got started. And now that carbon removal and the carbon markets have actually picked up, we've been able to, to, you know, uh, lean back into that original idea of carbon removal. That's wonderful. And so like fast forward to now, what does the company look like today? How many people are you? Who are your customers? Yeah, so so we're actually still a dozen people, so still quite small, going on 20 in Q1 next year. So so growing growing nicely. Um we have a demonstration unit, so a small factory in California that's up and running. And uh, we've sold our first, you know, carbon carbon removal credits and, and tons of biochar here and there, but mainly for uh, technology companies or very early adopters, uh, some, you know, corporates and VCs who, who have wanted to offset their, their carbon footprint and recognize that to do like to get to actual net zero, you would actually need to remove the carbon, not just offset it with with avoiding emissions. Um, but in any case, we can get into that that part later. But but right now we're doing pre-sales uh, for our future facilities. And so there we have quite significant offtake agreements already. And, and those are mostly, again, to companies or even to platforms who help companies um, understand how they can mitigate their their carbon footprint. Wow, that's fascinating. So you have essentially, if I understood it correctly, two parts to your business. You sell the biocarbon, uh, essentially the, the the chips or the rocks that you guys are building or developing, and then um, also the emissions credits. Is that correct? Yeah. So so exactly, and we also generate some heat in the process. So that's what we can sell to you know, district heating in places like Scandinavia where it's cold and, and there are district heating systems or or to industrial use cases um, uh, that, that need heat or the gases. But but yes, and the carbon credits is is the, the main product and they're like it's good for the listeners also to to think about, you know, in Europe we have a lot of companies that have net zero targets. But what net zero actually means is that anything that you're still emitting at that point, you would physically have to bring down from the atmosphere. So actually do carbon removal. Um, and the kind of like cheaper offsets that we're seeing these days are mostly carbon avoidance. So, so they might be protection of a forest or a natural area, which is highly important, by the way. And, and we should reduce those, those emissions. Um, but uh also there are things like supporting green energy or or other types of types of situations where you're not actually doing the carbon removal but just avoiding more emissions so there's a lot actually that that companies can be doing and also just to come back to your business model because you guys have essentially 
three different offers, if we could characterize it like that. Um, do you see very different customers for each one of the offers, or is it essentially the same type of business that would be interested in heating, in credits, in in the biocarbon? Oh yeah, absolutely not. So so um, for the biocarbon, we would sell it to, for example, soil soil companies who would then sell it onwards in different kinds of mixtures or something and that's hyper local to to where our facility is located as is the heat as well so of course when we're generating heat or even if we purify the gases for industrial use nearby there's no point in transporting that long distances but because you start to lose that that efficiency there but for the co2 removal credits they are global so we are selling in the voluntary market, which means that we're not restricted to a geography. So we can sell to a tech company in San Francisco, to a corporate in Japan, or to a government in Europe or somebody else. So so it's very, very global. And therefore, like the two first products are hyper local and, and they are, you know, um, more to do with where, where we have boots on the ground and then the carbon removal credits are are essentially anywhere. Wonderful. And I just feel like when we talk today about clean technologies and especially about carbon capture, I feel like so much gets thrown into that bucket that it's easy to get lost. And, you know, there's different types of carbon capture and carbon removal. So how does this technology compare with others? Yeah. So so I think like, um, first of all, all sorts of approaches are needed at this point. Uh, there's uh, global supply of carbon removal and that includes everything from planting new forests to uh, different sorts of technological approaches to soil carbon removal and everything it's maybe 30 million tons and we need to get to 2 billion tons by 2030 so there is room and space for all sorts of uh, approaches and and some of them will work better in in certain geographies than than others and that's just how we have to piece this puzzle together. Um, but when we're comparing ourselves to to other technological approaches or or even the natural ones, there's there's a few things. So one is that we don't need huge amounts of energy to run the process or to capture the carbon. So, so we obviously outsource the, the CO2 capturing to plants, which work with solar power every day, and we don't need energy, energy input in that. And, um, and the storage as well is, is kind of like, because of this way that we convert it into, we don't, again, have to put a lot of energy there. We'll just have to put a little bit of energy to transporting it to the, to the site where it will be used. So no need to kind of like transport gas to an oil well and then pump it deep underground or something else. So there's a, at every approach, you have to kind of weigh the, how much, how much energy is actually going into this thing and, and what's the sort of uh, benefit that we're getting out. And another thing that is something to kind of examine when, when looking at carbon removal is the permanence. So, hey, if we plant a new forest, how long can we guarantee the permanence for? Um, maybe it's, you know, takes 30 years to reach maturity. And then after that, can we guarantee that nobody goes and touches it for another 30? Maybe. But um, there have been some, some problems with wildfires or human intervention and so forth. So 
uh, it's a lot cheaper, a bit slower and uh, yeah, a little bit riskier. And, and then again, if we look at something like um, direct air capture that takes a lot of energy to actually run, then you can only do that in places where there's bountiful clean energy, like, like you know, Iceland or, or some other place where, where you have exactly the, the situation where, where you can act as a company. So all of these approaches have their different benefits and, and downsides, and those are the things that we have to weigh. And I think I think it's really interesting um, what you mentioned earlier about the fact that well today companies say that they're offsetting their emissions, but actually they're they're essentially buying the credits. But the real kind of battle is going to be in bringing down the emissions. Um, who do you see, or do you do you actually see companies today that are essentially not worrying about reducing their emissions because they can simply offset by through credits? Well, probably yeah, there are some, but that's like. I think it'll go away quite quickly because we're starting to understand that scientifically that's not true. And, uh, and to reach any of the Paris Agreement um, targets, we need to dramatically cut our, cut our footprint. And it's so much easier to reduce emissions than to actually remove them. So that should be like everybody's first and foremost plan. <laughs> and then at the end of the day in 2030 or 2050, the industries that are the hardest to decarbonize and have a little bit of emissions left should be the ones that are using the carbon removal capacity, not everybody. So, so essentially like carbon removal in all its shapes and forms can maybe get us to a third of the Paris Agreement if we're very lucky and if we get to scale. So this is definitely not a silver bullet that's going to kind of solve all of our problems we need to look a lot more systematically at this thing and i think that's where a lot of technologists uh, tend to think that hey can't we just push some button and the, the problem will go away and definitely not <laughs> yeah. um, so i'm wondering actually also have you seen i mean given what you just said and the fact that reducing emissions is going to be so important do you see any companies today that you feel are taking a very good approach and that they should be recognized yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of um, lots of corporates that have put some quite some efforts into this. So Swiss Re, for example, has a internal carbon price. So whatever emissions they're making today, per ton of CO two, a hundred dollars is put aside into this kind of an internal bank, and this is an ongoing program that they don't need to debate with the board every year or something, and so. By 2030, that internal carbon tax is going up to $200 a ton. So they're de-incentivizing everyone in their company to actually pollute. And in addition to that, you know, and I don't know the details, like how do you then allocate that, that allowance and so forth. But um, in addition to that, they're, they're purchasing their offsets right now. They have about 90% offsets and 10% removals. And they've written extensively about this, um, so you can read about it online. And by 2030, they're trying to push for towards, you know, getting that to 100% removals. And so that's, you know, one approach. And now every company can build something that works for themselves or for, for your sort of agenda and what you do. And a consultancy might be very different to a manufacturing company. And so... If your if your emissions are like from third party transportation or or something else from heating your building, 
you can see what you can do there, maybe incentivize trains and and using any kind of heat that's available that would be less greenhouse gas emissions like you know nuclear and, and renewables if you have but um but then if you are manufacturing stuff then you really need to look at your supply chain and your energy use and so forth and, and start taking that apart and, and thinking how you can reduce that and that's a totally different scale than than the first one so everybody has to kind of find their way Yeah. Well, that's, I think, some really great examples. Um, I want to come back really quickly, though, to your company, because you guys actually raised some funding earlier this year uh, with Cherry and True Ventures. Tell me, what is the funding going to allow you guys to do and to develop? Yeah, so so, um, we're developing our commercial scale unit. So basically scaling up the technology so that we can get to uh, useful impact uh, and uh, scaling out the team and professionalizing it a little bit from like super startup mode to to getting some more processes in and so forth and, and really talented people. And, and that's about it, you know, focusing on people and tech this year very hard. And um, on the customer side, we've we've managed to attract a lot of good, good customers. And, and um, there we have uh, really good partners to move forward. So so that's been going well as well. So so maybe those three areas, yeah. Wonderful. And I think you, you mentioned this as well, but just this type of business also is so environmentally based that it has to be very local, take, take advantage of the local resources. So tell me, what is the advantage or the benefit of being based in Helsinki? Yeah, well, Helsinki is kind of uh, excellent for, for any kind of bio-based engineering know-how and uh, also the the economics here a third of our economy has been built on forestry so so people know all sorts of things about uh, these types of approaches because we we work in this space where we're heavily working with the natural world or or biomass uh, and then we have our own technology that we've developed on top so so we kind of need people who understand this marriage of things and, and can work in a, a space that's not just purely software. So so that's one of the, the elements. Also, the Nordics is just like top of the world when it comes to like sustainability thinking and any kind of support for, for that. Uh, and you can see it not just in the government, but also in corporates and, and willingness to to purchase things or do new things and so forth. Uh, it's, it's very, very much uh, top of the world here. But we have our demonstration unit in California. And there there's also the kind of uh, environmental thinking very much like in Europe. So, so it's no coincidence that we're in California and Europe. But also there's a lot of biomass because of the forest fires and because of huge agricultural um you know the, the the area central valley produces about half of the u.s produce so the scale of agricultural production is just so huge there and there's a huge amount of this kind of waste that's typically just burnt um away so there were a couple of geographic things that we wanted to tap into as well wonderful yeah i think you you definitely have two kind of early adopter uh, environmentally friendly locations that you guys have, have been able to leverage. Um, I want to take a step back actually from the company and just kind of get your impressions on 
what you find to be exciting, clean innovations kind of outside of carbon capture? Yeah, um, I I really like the the ocean stuff that's happening. Um, it's fairly new, so so still looking out for for new research and stuff like that on it. But I I do like these approaches of kind of using biology and and her scale already um, to solve some of these challenges that we're looking at. Very excited about new biomaterials. There's uh, new sorts of textiles being made from from woody waste. And uh, also, I wish that planes would soon move to biofuels. Uh, (laughs) I'd be happy to pay more for flights because I love seeing people. I love doing business globally. It would be such a shame if we just couldn't travel anymore. So so I really think that somehow getting travel up to speed on the on the ecological front would be great. And uh, and yeah, new nuclear. So it's all sorts of mini nuclear systems, either molten salt or uh, fusion, or you know, there's different kinds of approaches. But I'm so excited to see what happens there because it is truly the the least harmful and the the zero emission um, energy source that that we are looking at. But of course, those things take time. So so short term. Those are some great examples. Yeah. But what what I'm curious about the ocean ocean innovations. What do you see happening in that space specifically? Well, there is, you know, all sorts of seaweed stuff happening. So so both seaweed to to capture carbon is is one thing, seaweed farming and also seaweed for uh for human diet. So so growing our food in the seas. Those are a few things that are, that are happening. So so I don't know, that kind of space seems like a no-brainer because um, we're running out of landmass to grow forests, so, so perhaps we can do something there. But of course, uh, it's, a, it's a rough place, so, so no place to f- play around. But perhaps we can find some innovators who, who can use it to their advantage. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and before we finish, I'd love to know, what do you think our planet's going to look like in 50 years' time? <laughs> well, uh, I have to be an optimist, you know, and uh, we have seen in the past that when we do quick legislation with public pressure and we bring in new innovations, we can quickly, you know, make a difference. And so, for example, I don't know, when I was a kid, there was still lead in, in uh, gas combustion, uh, gasoline, and obviously that's not allowed anymore and that was quickly taken away so we can do things very quickly if we put our minds to it and i think that this world will turn towards a greener and a cleaner place and so i'm looking forward to cities that don't have so many cars on the road i'm looking forward to cleaner air and to you know cleaner more more nutritious food and uh, all sorts of things that are that are going to happen but I really do hope that that our kids do get to see a planet that is so miraculously beautiful as as we see today with you know all the jungles and the, and the ice caps and all sorts of things so so that's what I'm dreaming of. Wonderful. That's such a nice note to finish this conversation on and I think it's such a beautiful image. Uh, Henrietta, it's been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next up, we have Talal Hassan from 4401 Earth. Hi, Talal. It's great to have you with us here today. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. 
Wonderful. Well, your company is called 4401. And before we get into what it's all about, can you just tell me what is this name? What does it even mean? Sure. So 44.01 is the molecular mass of carbon dioxide. So um, so we are focused on carbon removal. So that's why we named ourselves after the molecular mass of carbon dioxide. Wonderful. Well, that's a great entrance into our discussion today. Uh, so you talk about carbon removal. Tell me exactly what you do. How does it work? Sure. So 4401 is a technology company that turns CO2 into rock using the natural power of mineralization. So once converted into rock, the CO2 can never be re-released into the atmosphere. Our process requires a special rock, though. It's, it's called peridotite. And um, peridotite is typically found 40 kilometers under the Earth's surface. Um, and it's a really special rock because it reacts naturally with CO2 and mineralizes it permanently. And here in Oman, we're really lucky because this rock actually is pushed up to the surface, making it more accessible. So mineralization happens here around us every day into these peridotite rocks. And all our company does is we've come up with a, a process to speed up this natural reaction using technology and renewable energy to permanently and safely remove CO2 from our atmosphere. That sounds incredible. And I love that you broke it down for our listeners, because as you guessed correctly, um, probably a lot of people aren't at that technical and familiar with how this works. So essentially turning carbon dioxide into rock can't make it more simple than that. But how do you actually do it? What kind of, I'm just like, I'm trying to imagine the infrastructure that you must have it in place. Like, is it some kind of massive, you know, machinery? How does this actually take place? Sure. So think of us as infrastructure for carbon capture. So we don't actually capture the CO2. We, we offtake the CO2 from a carbon capture company. Uh, and what we do is we do something called in situ mineralization. So this is actually mineralizing underground um, where it's, it's safer and it's in a more controlled environment. So the way I like to describe it is think of it as oil and gas in reverse. So rather than pulling the hydrocarbon out of the ground, we're putting the carbon back in where it can be mineralized safely and permanently. So you've kind of touched upon some different types of carbon capture. You've talked about mineralization, you've talked about in situ, you've talked about uh, the minerals that you're using and how it may differ. Um, but can you just give us like a bit of an overview of why this specific process is potentially the best one? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And one of the things that we always say is that that there is there is no silver bullet here. Um, you know, we we do need to rely on every single solution that is out there. Um, so I would emphasize that um, we're we're we we should not rely on on just mineralization here. We need an array of of technologies and processes, whether that's um, nature-based like ours, or whether that's um, forestation, whether that's direct air capture. Um, we need as much carbon removal as we can possibly do. And so when we're talking about as much carbon removal as we possibly can do, what what's optimal? How much carbon actually needs to be removed? How much rock do we need to create? <laughs> that's, that's a superb question. So um, off the top of my head, um, I think the last 
the last kind of uh, numbers we were at was we are currently at about 420, around 420 parts per million ppm um, of CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, just to give you an idea, it should be closer or it was about 250 ppm. Um, and it's, it's humankind that have just created too many emissions. So our atmosphere and our oceans are, have reached such a high level of CO2 concentration, and this is having a negative effect on, on our planet. Um, so if we continue producing these emissions, it will take less than 10 years uh, before it's irreversible. Climate change becomes irreversible. So I guess, um, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I hope that answers your question. So, so how much essentially are we either slowing things down or is, are things reversible? That's, that's a superb question. At, at the rate we're going now, um, you know, we are kind of going down this path where, uh, where we will unfortunately emit too much. The best case scenario, however, is that people, corporations start to clean up after themselves. Um, and this will help us keep under the two degrees Celsius increase in global temperatures, leading to a healthy planet for us to hand over to, to our further future generations to come. Wonderful. And so you also mentioned earlier that there's some advantages to being based where you are in Oman. And actually, we can we can hear some of the, the current vibes to where you are at in the background. Um, but tell me specifically, why Oman? Was it also just kind of serendipitous? Did you happen to be there? Or was it really this location you picked for the specific technology? Yeah, so again, a very good question. And um, uh, apart from having the rock coming to the surface here, which is a, and having it accessible, which is a great advantage. This, this region that we're in um, has some of the highest CO2 emissions per capita in the world. And, you know, that's a combination of being an oil producing country, being, um, you know, relying on, on imports. Uh, you know, we, we have to, because it's, it's quite vast land, we have to drive around a lot. Um, so all of these just contribute towards um, a really high kind of emissions per capita. So actually, we are probably in the best region for getting our hands on the emissions because that they're, they're here and for disposing of those emissions safely and permanently with, uh, with the rock that we have here. And the other massive advantage we have in the middle of those two is the fact that um, our process does rely quite heavily on, on infrastructure that you would typically find in the oil and gas industry, which, as you know from our region, is, is, quite, um, is quite easy to get our hands on. And before I switch to talking maybe a little bit more about um, this as a business, we've talked quite a bit about the technology so far. Can you tell me why this mineral comes to the surface in Oman? Why, why is that the case there? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's um, geology. So the plates have pushed uh, this particular rock up to the surface here. So it's just two plates pushing against each other and, and pushing this particular uh, rock up to the surface here in Oman. Interesting. And, and that's not the case anywhere else in the world? There, there are other places in the world. Um, so we, we can use our technology anywhere where this rock is uh, does come to the surface. Uh, the, the United Arab Emirates, so right next door to Oman, is, is another place. 
um, as well as the US. And these are both two locations that we are currently looking at as well. Wonderful. So as I mentioned, I think so far we've talked quite a bit about the innovation and the tech behind it. Now, uh, from just a business perspective, who essentially is the customer here? Yeah. So um, for, from our side, the customer is the carbon capture company, people who are providing us with the CO2. So it, it's it's really important. We've, we noticed that uh, you have these cutting edge direct air capture companies who are you know, doing magic by pulling these 420 parts per million of CO2 out of the atmosphere um, into a concentrated uh, CO2 source. But then they were having to say, hey, what do I do with the CO2? And this is where we come in. We, we come in and we work with them and we help them uh, permanently convert the, that CO2 into rock so it's never uh, re-emitted onto the planet again. So they pay for you to essentially create the rock? Yes, that's correct. It's a mineralization as a service fee. Okay, very interesting. And once they have the mineral, then who does it go back to? So once the mineral is created, um, or once we mineralize the CO2, uh, we create a carbon credit. And that's what goes back to the carbon capture company. Super. And for people who are unfamiliar with carbon credits, can you explain a little bit how that works? Yeah, sure. Um, we could probably hold a whole podcast on carbon credits. <laughs> a different and, uh, discussion. It, it is quite a, it is quite disjointed, I must admit. And um, you know, I've been looking at this space now for four years, five years, and even I don't fully understand how carbon credits work. However, for the the type of carbon credit that we produce from our process, it's it's a very specific type of carbon credit. It's um, it is uh, it's almost like the creme de la creme. It's the um, the, the higher end type of carbon credit because it's truly a carbon removal credit. So think of um, if we have a direct air capture uh, plant that's pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere um, and we're permanently removing that CO2, uh, it's something what we call negative emissions because you are removing CO2 that's historically been emitted into the atmosphere. So there's a higher carbon credit price associated with with that type of removal it's a high quality removal and that carbon credit is typically sold on the voluntary market very interesting i didn't realize that there were grades of uh, carbon credits so that's something <laughs> i've just learned um and so you also i mean i think from a business perspective it's really interesting because um getting a business like this to be fundable as well. And it sounds like you also have some very interesting people in your cap table that I'd love to ask you about. How do you get this to be a VC backable business? What do you, what process do you have to go through? Yeah, I, I probably have an unconventional response to this question. Um, so I, I feel that we can't put a price on our planet. Uh, we, we only have one that that's all we've got. So so if you have a company with a technology that fights climate change uh, to make sure that we have a planet that's inhabitable for future generations, I would argue that makes the company invaluable. Um, I may be biased, but uh, um, however, as, as we kind of, um, as we're measured on kind of the impact that we make, um, I, I, would, I would say that for us, it's, it's more important to, uh, to just pull as much CO2 out of the atmosphere as we can. And 
if there are economics attached to that metric, which there are, then then great. Wonderful. And so I kind of hinted at them, but I didn't say their names. So you have both Sam Altman and uh, Bill Gates Fund in your cap table. Can you just tell me a little bit about what the fundraising process was like? And I feel like maybe a few years ago, we had less investors that were really excited about climate um, and these different types of technologies. What was the response that you got when you were fundraising just from the general investor audience? Yeah, f- fundraising was uh, was a, an interesting ride. Uh, so we we fundraised in in the middle of the pandemic, and oh, wow. um, so uh, so everything was uh, over um, over video calls and and online. Um, we you know we really wanted to find investors that would measure us for our impact, and um, and that was something that was really important to us as as a business. So. Um, so yeah, we we went out, spoke to a lot of people. Um, we were oversubscribed, and we ended up going with the people that we felt um, would truly measure us for the impact that we make and um, and help us along this journey the most. And that happened to be the the investors that that came on board. So the fact that you, I mean, it's it's very interesting context, obviously, to raise during COVID. Um, to be oversubscribed and to be oversubscribed in this space where obviously I feel like a lot of investors are interested and they talk the talk, but do they walk the walk is the, is the real question. Did you feel like a lot of credible investors were looking at this space and this type of technology? Yes, there were definitely a lot of credible investors out there looking at this space. But again, we, we just wanted, um, we wanted people who are more environmentally focused, um, you know, people who have been in this space for um, for a bit of time and have done deals in this space. So that was something that was important to us. Very interesting. And before we kind of move on to talking about different technologies uh, kind of in the climate space outside of carbon capture, um, I want to ask you a little bit about how do you measure your own business performance? What KPIs are you tracking um, to see if your company is successful? Yeah, uh, so our impact metric is really easy. Uh, we measure ourselves on how much CO2 we can mineralize and turn into rock, removing it from the planet forever. Um, and so what's the target? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great. Uh, so we, we do want to reach the gigaton level. Um, gigaton is um, is the kind of elusive target for, for anyone in this space. Because uh, as soon as you start to reach gigaton levels of uh, carbon removal, that's when you really are making an impact. Wonderful. All right. Well, now that we've gotten a chance to really get to know uh, your business, I'd also love to know from where you're sitting, what other technologies and companies in this space are catching your eye? Yeah, that's a great question. There's there's, uh, there's a lot going on at the moment in this space. And uh, I have to admit, every day I'm, I'm excited by, by reading something new or a, a novel idea that has come out. Um, you know, for, for now, I always kind of uh, describe CO2 emissions as think of it as a bathtub and um, our earth being the proverbial bath here. And you have the tap, which is on, which is the water flowing into the bathtub, which is the CO2. And we've reached this point where the bath is overflowing with water or the earth is overflowing with CO2. And a lot of the previous technologies, solar renewables, they focus on turning the tap down 
So reducing emissions, aiming for net zero. Um, however, for, for me, the, the technologies that really kind of stand out for me are the ones that pull the plug, that drain the CO2, uh, and that's carbon removal. So anything in the carbon removal space really is, I think, um, is interesting. There's lots of different types of uh, direct air capture technologies now that are coming out, um, which, uh, which are really interesting. People who are finding different ways to scale it up, people who are finding ways to use renewables to, uh, to, to do carbon capture. There's a lot of um, um, ocean-based uh, technologies as well, which are, are quite promising um, and definitely a space to watch, um, as well as kind of, uh, you know, just, just standard forestation, um, I think is important. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's so much. Uh, I, I don't know how to answer that question. Wonderful. Well, I think you gave us some good elements. Are there any company names that you want to highlight because you feel they're just worth mentioning and, and following? Well, absolutely. Um, Climeworks are for us the the people who are paving the way um, in the kind of negative emission space. Um, they're brilliant. The team's great. Um, obviously, we're probably biased because we we do have uh, to to disclose we do have a project with them uh, where we will be receiving a um, a direct air capture plant from them uh, here in Oman. Um, but uh, what, what we really like about them is they bring the whole sector together. They, they hold annual summits, they share, and they're quite transparent as well. And um, so, yeah, if I, have to, if I have to shout out one company name, it would be Climeworks. Wonderful. And I'm just curious, um, how did you get into the space? Do, I'm, I'm just imagining for like our listeners, probably a lot of people imagine that you need to have done years of research and have five PhDs. I mean, what was your background prior? Yeah. Um, normally, this is the first question. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, my my uncle was the first minister of environment here in Oman and a huge inspiration to me. So I was taught about the importance of the environment from a young age, and I always knew it would play uh, a role in my in my future. Um, so my last career was uh, was uh, working at um, Oman's sovereign technology fund. And one day I came into work and I came across a headline in the international press uh, stating that scientists had discovered the world's largest dead zone off the coast of Oman. Um, so this led me to explore why this mass of sea had emerged with no oxygen content or sea life. And I soon discovered this was linked to CO2 emissions being absorbed by our oceans. And this then led me to look at clean technologies at my job and how they can help us and help the world. It was then kind of a natural step, I guess, for me to go and combine my knowledge of the clean tech sector with my passion for the environment. And that's how 4401 was born. Wow. So actually, you kind of fell into this space. It wasn't like you had been training for a job in this your whole life. Absolutely. Yes. That's wonderful. And I think also for our listeners who may be interested by this space, but feel that it's out of reach what would be your advice to people who may want to launch a company but think they don't have the credibility to to do so? Passion and collaboration. I think those, <laughs> those are the two most important things. <laughs> and how about for the for the environmental space? Is there some specific skill that you feel is required? 
Um, it's it's a really good question. So I, I've always been passionate about the environment. I've always um, kept my eye on clean tech and um, how what what works and what doesn't work. Um, I think it is important to to have a good understanding of the environment and uh, you know it, it is the environment is a fragile thing. Uh, biodiversity. It is very easy to to tip the balance and you know especially if you're um, if you're working in the technology space in the clean tech space uh, you know it, it it can you can kind of non-intentionally um, affect the biodiversity so I think having a good grounding about um, about the environment is really important uh, before you venture into into clean tech wonderful I think that's a great note for us to finish up on Tala it's been wonderful having you with us thank you so much Thank you for your time today. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This podcast is supported by TikTok. If you like this episode, make sure to leave us many, many stars. We are available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Deezer. And if you have any speaker requests, feel free to ping us on Twitter or at press at stationf.co. 